This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a small gym in downtown Denver that builds more than muscle. We're broken when we get here, and this is about, like, building us up. You know, building us up from the inside out. Mike Milkey, who is addicted to drugs and alcohol, is a volunteer trainer at Phoenix Multisport. The nonprofit was recently praised by the Trump administration in the fight against opioid addiction. For me, getting sober was hard alone, but doing it with other people was really helpful. We can do that working out, we can do that rock climbing, we can do that mountain biking. For me, I think that is just spectacular. The first Phoenix Multisport opened in Boulder in 2006. There are now three in Colorado, a total of nine nationwide. Kelly Cave is an instructor here and, like Milky, is in recovery. She was a drinker. Fitness wasn't exactly the first thing on my mind. I smoked cigarettes and drank coffee all day. It was totally, like, not a priority. Um, I just knew I needed people, and somebody told me that this place had the kind of people that I needed. It's better than a bar. Immediately, something just switched. You know, I just found my home. Last month, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tom Price, visited the Colorado Springs location and said he heard over and over again how the gym creates the feeling of family. It, it kind of punctuates what we've seen in other communities, and that is that, that, that local solutions work best. That's courtesy of the Colorado Springs Gazette. Instructor Kelly Cave says it's about time this recognition came. You know, I've always kind of said it felt like it, this place was the best kept secret in Denver and now, you know, many other places. Um, but to get that kind of recognition, it's in a way it's like so exciting and unbelievable. But at the same time, it's like finally. The Phoenix is the creation of Scott Strode, who says the gyms have served 22,000 people across the country. And the membership fee? 48 hours of continuous sobriety. And Scott, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Your members struggle with all sorts of addiction. But I want to hone in on some specific numbers. 912 people in Colorado died from overdoses last year. That's a record. And of those, 300 were from opioids. Heroin claimed another 228 lives. Are you seeing the opioid crisis play out in your gyms? Absolutely. Um, when Phoenix started about 11 years ago, we saw a lot of polysubstance users, both alcohol, cocaine, that kind of stuff. And slowly it's shifted almost entirely to opioids when you get into a certain demographic. Does that present new challenges, different challenges? Absolutely, because uh, opioid addiction, you know, the chance of lethality is so high. You The overdoses, um, if people don't find recovery early on in their addiction, the likelihood of them dying is pretty high. I see. So the importance of intervention has increased in that regard. Is this a replacement for, say, a 12-step program? No, it's it's one more tool in the toolbox. I mean, I think we have treatment, formal therapy, 12-step, all sorts of recovery supports. But Phoenix really is how people build community and sobriety and new identity. It also allows people to kind of dream of who they can be in recovery. And the Phoenix doesn't just offer weightlifting, but running, mountain, climbing, cycling, skiing. Uh, why those activities outside the gym? I, we try to pick activities that are sort of individual sports that we can do together. And each sport we choose has this intrinsic kind of strength that helps people see what they're capable of, which helps them heal the self-esteem wounds so often associated with addiction. Say more about that. 
I think addiction really, I believe, is a way for us to try to numb some pain we have inside. And I think in our society, we tend to try to sort of find our emotional well-being externally. You know, how much money we make, what we look like, what car we drive, that kind of stuff. For me, it was drinking and drugging. And and I was trying to numb some pain or self-worth thing. And the first time I stood on top of a mountain or crossed the finish line, it really started to change how I saw myself. Hmm. And so you derived that uh, from from somewhere else. Yep. Yeah. Tell me about your own experience. What led you to found the gym? Yeah, well, I, I started drinking and drugging pretty young. I had my first drink at 11, tried cocaine at 15. And unfortunately, that's not, not that uncommon. And um, addiction started to strip away all the dreams I had in my life. And, and I found my way into a boxing gym. And there was something about getting in the ring for the first time. That, that taught me that I can do whatever I put my mind to. And that was the founding of Phoenix, essentially. I understand that all your instructors are in recovery as well. Yeah, that peer-to-peer dynamic. When somebody understands where you're coming from and you also see somebody who's been through what you've been through and they've been able to triumph over it, it gives you the belief that you can do it as well. For some people, sobriety isn't something to broadcast far and wide. You know, it might be an intimately held truth, but you have a different view of sobriety and I guess your, your kind of public relationship with it. Yeah. And, and at the Phoenix, we really believe that we are stronger than stigma. And I'm proud of my recovery. I'm not so proud of what happened in my addiction, but I'm proud of who I am today. And if, if I'm like right now, I'm wearing a sober t-shirt and if I'm willing and to- And it wear... just says sober right across the chest. And <laughs> yeah. You have a formidable chest after all that working out. So it's prominent. Yeah. Well, what it does is it makes space for others that are struggling to ask for help. And we take it out of that shame place in our society and we put it in a place of power and strength. And I, you know, if, if I had cancer, people would be making me a casserole and bringing it over to help. But, but addiction is very different. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Scott Strode of Denver, founder of The Phoenix. It's a network of nonprofit gyms, fitness facilities that uh, work with folks who are trying to uh, get sober. And I, I wonder who this doesn't work for. Yeah. Who, who doesn't succeed? I think that um, oftentimes some, it, it's a slow process sometimes to come into recovery. People make come to Phoenix, but still be really anchored in their addiction and be in and out of their um, recovery over time. They finally get some good footing in recovery. That's why you only need to be 48 hours clean and sober before you come. We want people to re-engage in the community. So that becomes their new supportive family versus the the people they're drinking and drugging with. And, And so do you see people who come to you and then fall off the wagon, so to speak, and return 48 hours later or two years later. What I think, yes, we do. And what I think is so powerful when you climb a mountain with somebody or you do a hard workout, you build a bond. And in that bond, you build friendships. And those friendships are what help pull you back into recovery. It's those people at Phoenix that are reaching out to you if you relapse and trying to get you reengaged. Do you have evidence to support that this works? We do. We do um, entry surveys and three-month surveys. And the folks that are active participants, um, we have about a 23% relapse rate, which is way lower even than formal treatment. And we don't even have clinical staff. 
Does that have to do with the, the types of folks you think you're serving? I think in part, and I think it, it really speaks to the power of community. I think all of us as humans, we heal and we in community and we have a need for community. We want to find our tribe. And that's what the Phoenix becomes for folks. President Trump declared the opioid crisis, in particular, a national emergency. He said, quote, we're going to spend a lot of time, a lot of effort and a lot of money. Meanwhile, unsuccessful plans to repeal and replace Obamacare uh, would have shrunk Medicaid and allowed states to decide if that program for the poor should cover addiction services and mental health treatment. So do you, do you think the federal government, uh, from which you recently won praise, uh, is doing enough in, in this arena? You know, I, I, I don't think that any administration has over how the past decade. I think people have tried to turn the ship and address stigma and, and supplying more services for folks. Um, but I think that the challenge is we're trying to use tactics to solve the issue, not a strategy. I think we need, as a nation, a comprehensive strategy to address this, not just saying we're going to use opioid reversal drugs or we're going to do this, you know, this Medicaid and expand it and reach more folks. Like, what do we do then? There's really, there's really. It sounds like you're yearning for a holistic approach to this. Absolutely. And recovery supports is a critical part. That's why the Phoenix started as an organization to fill that gap. And it is free to those who show up at your door. Yep. It's free to anyone who's 48 hours clean and sober. Do you get federal funding or is it all sort of charity? We've had federal grants in the past and we have a state block grant now. Um, so our funding comes from all different sources. But, you know, I mean, we can run a chapter of Phoenix for what it costs to incarcerate four people for a year. And that chapter can serve thousands. Huh. You have gyms in Boulder, Denver, the Springs, outside of Colorado in Orange County, California. Uh, several in Massachusetts. How do you choose where they should go? Is it like a particularly active population or or a particularly addicted one? I don't know. Yeah, well, unfortunately, every community could use something like the Phoenix. So what we do is we find the right people in that community willing to champion the cause. So if people are interested in bringing it to their community, they can go to our website, thephoenix.org, and learn more. What role does legal marijuana in Colorado play in, I don't know, people's relationships with substances. Does that complicate the picture? Does it ease the picture? Yeah, I think it makes no difference at all. I don't know. I think on that issue that, you know, what we need to do is separate the concept of of legalization, um, decriminalization and personal use. And I think none of those sort of answers that we come up with should involve establishing a neurotoxin industry. Well, the challenge with the way Colorado did it is now we have a neurotoxin industry that's trying to refine how they deliver the drug, get it to more people, develop their next users, just like cigarettes did. So, you know, if we were in a society of just adults, it wouldn't be an issue, but it's the young people in our community I worry about. Are you seeing evidence of that in in the Phoenix multi-sport facilities? Um, we, we certainly, there's many people that come to Phoenix where marijuana addiction was part of their story. They tell you that yep. from, their, from their mouths. Scott, thank you for being with us. Nice to meet you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Scott Strode of Denver is founder of the nonprofit The Phoenix, which describes itself as a sober, active community. And the Trump administration recently recognized its work in the fight against the opioid epidemic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. 
Do you know where you'll be in June of 2019? Lindsay Horan and Mallory Pugh hope to be on a World Cup medal stand in France, representing the U.S. women's national soccer team. But closer at hand, the pair will join their teammates tomorrow at Dick Sporting Goods Park in Commerce City for a friendly match against New Zealand. And welcome to the program to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Lindsay, you're from Golden. Mallory, from uh, Highlands Ranch. And you both play on pro teams as well. So, Lindsay, for the Portland Thorns. Mallory, for the Washington Spirit. Lindsay, what's it going to be like to be uh, playing in your own backyard again? Oh, it's it's going to be amazing. I think Mal and I both um, really enjoyed it last time. And it was one of the coolest experiences of our lives playing in front of you know, our family and friends and all the support that we have here. So we're really looking forward to it. Uh, Mallory, uh, you're 19, I believe. What do you remember about the first time you played Dicks? I mean, I'm, I'm picturing you eating orange slices between halves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had a bunch of tournaments um, up at Dick's Sporting Goods Park. So um, it was always a cool experience to play inside the stadium. I think my first time was actually with my high school team. Um, my freshman year um, in the state final. So, yeah, that was really cool. Would Would the Mal back then be surprised by the Mal today playing there? Yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> Normally, this is a down period for the national team, but tomorrow's match is part of a pretty ambitious training schedule ahead of World Cup qualifying. You're playing 17 matches this year, 12 of them against teams ranked in the top 15 in the world. Uh, Lindsay, what's the thinking behind this strategy? Um, well, you know, like you said at the beginning of the call, is, you know, we're looking towards uh, winning that World Cup in, in two years from now. So everything that we do in, in the next few years is, is a building process, and we're trying, to, um, we're trying to prepare for that, and we're trying to play all these teams, um, all these incredible teams that are going to get us to that point and and we want to improve and get better every single game. So it's huge for us playing um, such such incredible teams. Does it feel really intense right now? Um, no, I mean, I think every time you come into camp, it's just, it, it's very important because we get little bits of time, um, you know, in our season and, and we want to come together and, and we want to get, we want to check a few things off off the boxes that, you know, we're, we're trying to improve and, and get better. And, and then these games are just, they're great for us. It's uh, playing against great opponents like New Zealand and, and working on, you know, the few things that uh, we said at the beginning of camp. Um, yeah, it's it's always intense coming into these camps because you're playing with the best players in the world. Um, but it's awesome. It's really fun. What do you each have to work on? What are your weak spots? Um, I think for me, it's um, just, I mean, our style of play, it's just... Um, to get it wide and um, just be creative out there. So I think for me, I think um, just continuing to just be creative on the ball and the wide positioning and um, just create scoring opportunities. I love that. Get, getting creative on the ball. What, what does that mean? Uh, help, help someone who doesn't know a lot about soccer understand that. <laughs> um, I think just different ways to beat defenders, um, whether that's your 1v1 with someone or um, if you are um, – it's just passing or dribbling and just being creative in all, all different ways of the game. 
There is also the idea of internal competition. So uh, your coach, Jill Ellis, has said part of the reason for this scheduling is internal evaluation. Uh, The 2019 squad obviously hasn't been named yet. Uh, Lindsay, you're all teammates, but give us a sense of what it's like, in a way, to compete with friends for a spot on the team. Yeah, it's uh, it's incredibly hard. You know, I as I said before, these are the best players in in the nation, and some of the best the best players in the world, and it's it's huge competition. But I think that's what we love about this. That's what um, you know motivates us, and and that's why we're playing this game. Is we want to be the best in the world, and as a team and as players, we we want to be the best that we can be. So coming into this environment, I think Mal and I both can say it's it's so competitive and intense and physical and everyone's uh like you said everyone's out for a spot and of course it's it's uh a little bit of time from now but every every camp is important leading into that and and jill is always evaluating so it's important to bring you know your best to every single camp and and also work towards you know getting this team-like feel before we go to um world cup qualifying you you've been called up, Lindsay, to the national team and then dropped from it. That that must be a tough roller coaster ride, huh? <laughs> um, I think the time that I was first called in, I was over in in Paris, and I was very young, and um, I I think I could say that I wasn't fully ready physically and and mentally. And I think after you know the year that went by that I I wasn't called in, I I really dug deep into that and. And knew what I had to work on to get back in, and I ended up getting that chance again, and um, it felt great. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, speaking with uh, women's soccer players Lindsay Horan and Mallory Pugh. They are back in their home state, representing the U.S. women's national soccer team in a match against New Zealand uh, tomorrow at Dick's Sporting Goods Park there in Commerce City. And uh, Mallory, you and Lindsay were both stars on U.S. youth teams, which helped your development and uh, helped you get spots on the national team. Certainly, it's a long time between now and 2019. But uh, how do you look at the younger players who may be gunning for for sort of your stature? Pardon? How do you look at the the younger players who may be gunning for you? Yeah, I think um, with our youth system, I mean, there's a age group for every single team now. Um, and I mean, that was a huge part of my development, um, being brought through just the youth system. So I think, um, there's a bunch of great players out there, um, right now. And, um, yeah, it's just like, like Lindsay said, even with the youth teams, like it's super competitive, um, going into camp and, um, yeah. So I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of talent out there. Um, and, I think a lot of people are just excited to see it. Yeah, let me let me just say the names of some of that talent. So Jalen Howell and Sophia Smith are both from Fossil Ridge High School in Fort Collins. They were called up to the national team earlier this year for a pair of friendlies against Russia, although they didn't get to, to play. Uh, Mallory, when you were playing for Highlands Ranch and in the club soccer, did you get the sense that play in this state was that strong? Um, yeah, I think, I mean... Lindsay can probably say the same that um, Colorado's just been producing great, um, not only soccer players, but I think athletes. Um, so I think it's just cool seeing that 
there's have been so many great athletes come out of Colorado and it's it's really exciting for the future. Lindsay, you'd agree? Yeah, absolutely. I think um I don't know what it is about Colorado. We're just the best state in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, there's there's so many athletes and, you know, friends of mine, friends of mouth that, you know, we can look up to not just in soccer but everyone, you know, doing big things and it's it's just it's very cool for us to to see that and to know some of these people and, and see some of the younger athletes and soccer players coming out of Colorado and that play for our youth clubs and, and see what they're aspiring to be. It must be really interesting to have team cohesion when you actually don't get to see each other that much, right? You're not together all that often given uh, your professional play. And how, how, do, you, how do you do that, uh, Mallory? <laughs> Um, I think, well, like off the field, everyone has great relationships and although like some of us, we play at different clubs. Um, I think that we stay in touch and from camp to camp, it's like, we really don't even leave camp. So I think just, um, it's really just the off the field relationships that we build. Besides uh, both of you being from Colorado, the two of you are also somewhat historic figures in your sport. Uh, Lindsay, in 2012, after you graduated from Golden High School, you did something unprecedented, passing up a scholarship to the University of North Carolina to play professionally in France. And Mallory, you went to UCLA for a year, I think, but never played there. And you also left school to turn pro. Now uh, you're a member of the Washington Spirit. Uh, Lindsay, what was the thought process behind your decision back then? Um, honestly, it was just you know, I, I've always had this goal as a, a young player was to go play professional, and I knew um, some of the best teams in the world were, were overseas, and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world was to go play professional overseas. And and I think once that kind of was a thought in my head, that it never left, and nothing against UNC or, or college or um, that route. I just think um, it was the best route for me. And... Um, you know, working towards my goals, I thought that was the fastest way I could get there, and it was going to help me develop more than more than anything else. And you know, putting me in in an uncomfortable position, going to a country that I didn't speak the language, and it was a new culture, and yeah. I was playing with all these incredible players. I think that was huge for me, and and that's kind of my thought process. Was your thought process also this is the best avenue for me to get to the World Cup and play for the United States? Yeah, I thought, you know, what's going to what's going to make me become a better player and and ultimately I I think putting myself in that uncomfortable position and and really trying to develop in a different way and and play with these players that I've been watching in in other World Cups and you know, other countries, so many internationals. Um yeah, I, I really thought that was going to that was going to help me the most. How did it work logistically? So there you are, quite young, as you say, not speaking French. Did you did you bring your parents with you or what? Um, no, I mean, my mom helped me move out there. Uh-huh. Uh, she was there for a week and then up and left, and I was <laughs> I was there. Um, but I, so many of the teammates that I had there helped me out. I like to call uh, um, my friend Anika Kron. She was my German mother. That's who I lived with the first year that really kind of helped and and obviously, Tobin, Tobin had come six months later, so um, I started to get very comfortable, and it was it wasn't easy at first, but it obviously got easier. Yeah, 
It does strike me as a recipe for having to grow up fast, though. Uh, Mallory, yeah. you were you were on campus and going to classes. A lot of people call college the best four years of their lives. But when did it hit you that that college just wasn't your your thing? Um. Yeah, I think um, I went to UCLA, and it was probably a. Re- I mean, I could say that it was one of the best experiences. Um, but I think there's just there was no certain time of when. Um, no certain day or certain moment when I thought, oh, I need to, I, I think it's time to leave, but, um, it was kind of just a gradual thing. And, um, yeah, when I was there, I learned, I think I grew as a person and as a player a lot. And, um, I could, the thought process was kind of like the same as Lindsay's is like, where am I going to put myself to be the best player that I can be and push myself and challenge myself. So, um, yeah, I think that was kind of the thought process that, went through my mind and um, I talked close to my family and friends and talked to Lindsay some and asked her about about her experience in France and she was very honest and um, yeah, but ultimately it was my decision and um, yeah, I think that it was just the best decision for me. Yeah. Well, uh, good luck. Break a leg tomorrow against the Kiwis. Thanks so much. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. You heard there from Mallory Pugh of Highlands Ranch and Lindsay Horan of Golden, members of the U.S. women's national soccer team. They are back in Colorado now to play in a match against New Zealand at Dick's Sporting Goods Park in Commerce City Friday night. Still to come, Colorado's deadliest floods. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A lot of people thought it wouldn't happen again, but the Big Thompson River flooded four years ago this week, much like it did in 1976. Both floods claimed lives and property. Darla Sue Dolman documents these events and many others in her new book, Colorado's Deadliest Floods. She has experienced firsthand how terrifying flash floods can be. And Darla Sue, welcome to the program. Thank you. Eight people died in the 2013 floods, the costliest in Colorado history in terms of floods. And that flood in the 70s claimed, uh, get this, 144 lives. And it, it got me wondering, with so many people moving to Colorado these days, what lessons do the floods that you write about hold for residents, new and old? Is, is there a moral to this story? Uh, yes, I think the... Um greatest lesson that we learned from these experiences is that you can never be too prepared and don't trust nature. Hmm. Don't become complacent. Don't, don't believe that it will never happen again. Um, there, there has been changes, for instance, after the big Thompson flood, um, we, we learned that people tend to run to their vehicles when a disaster is happening, and that's generally the last place you should be. Um, so now there are signs in the canyon saying, get out of your vehicle and go to high ground. Huh. Um, but yes, but it's, uh, um, we also learned things about uh, messing around with Mother Nature. When, when uh, the road was built in the canyon, uh, the river was realigned in 19 different places. So uh, basically the river ran straight down the mountain. So we have these storms that stall up by Estes Park, 
dump a bunch of water and it it runs straight down. And uh, right now they're closing the highway and making changes to correct the river and and the highway. You say you can never be too prepared. What what does it mean to be prepared? Like, how how have you changed your own preparedness after reading about decades, centuries of Colorado floods? Um, I've always been a bit overprepared. My children called me uh, called me Doppler mom when <laughs> when uh, yes, it was a, a little uh, name that stuck for years. But um, I I think. I became even more sensitive to the possibilities. For instance, um, a, a small creek can suddenly become a raging river and, and carry off huge, huge uh, buildings and, and um, uh, homes. And, of course, as we learned in Spring Creek, uh, people. So... You want to be ready to evacuate. If if you're going to make a choice, and it is a choice, to live near a, a body of water of any size, if you're anywhere near water, there is a possibility of flooding. So you you need to be prepared and keep important documents and irreplaceable photographs um, close to the closet by the front door, for instance. Um, I am. I have many animals, so I keep everything that I need: kennels, uh, extra dog food, uh, leashes, etc., in the closet right by the front door. If I receive a notice that there is a watch, I'm ready to go. Mm. If I receive a, a notice that there is a warning. I, I grab everything, and most people might take twenty minutes to half an hour to be prepared. I'm out that door in five minutes. Doppler Doppler mom is out quick. You, you mentioned the Spring Creek flood. This was, uh, I think, in 1997, when about gosh, like 14 inches of rain fell in the Fort Collins area. It was a yes. pretty deadly event. But it, it's interesting. You say that. Uh, a different flood in Colorado's history might have been the most destructive, the Pueblo Flood of 1921. What makes you think that it takes that title? Because of the issues with documentation. Um, One of the things that I learned in, in researching this book is it's very hard to research natural disasters. Um, they They're... When when I was researching, for instance, the 1864 flood, I had to consult numerous sources and then compare them and and try to find the most reliable uh, observations. Uh, when it came to the 1921 flood, they had 15 feet of water in some places, and the water stayed in Pueblo for days. Hmm. And one thing that that many people are not aware of about that flood is that many people were living, actually living underneath the bridges. Uh, we have uh, mining. Southern Colorado is a mining area. So people were coming from all over the world to try to, literally, to try to find jobs in the uh, mines. And... Uh, they they didn't speak English. There was no documentation. No one was taking names, writing down uh, families, 
um, information. So when the floods came through, um, they 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 didn't know. It sounds so morbid, but they didn't know how many people had actually died, and the only way they had of of telling how many people actually died was uh, by counting the bodies that were recovered. So they recovered approximately 300. But now many historians are coming back and saying that as many as 1,500 people were lost, uh, mainly because of that uh, immigrant population uh, with the water that sat in in the city for so long. uh, The bodies under the bridges especially were covered with um, uh, feet of uh, silt and debris. And um, they were finding uh, debris all the way to the to the borders of Colorado. Um, Let me say this again is in 1921 in Pueblo and on the city of Pueblo's website, it says one of the most amazing things about the 21 flood was not the horrendous amount of damage and life lost, but the bravery and kindness of people caught in this horrible disaster. And um I, I, I might have you share a story of, of bravery and kindness from any one of the floods that sticks out to you. Um, well, I have a couple, actually. And it sounds, um, it sounds like you have it, them on that, those pieces of paper, which I'll just ask you to, to shuffle a bit less because it, it distracts from, from your dulcet tones there, Darla Sue. Okay. Um, if, with the Big Thompson flood... Um, I just wanted to make sure that I got these the names right, because to me, it, it's important to remember the name of a hero. Mm. And Hugh Purdy was an off-duty Colorado State Patrol sergeant who was phoned um, while he was watching the Olympics with his wife. And he, of course, responded and said, yes, I will go check out these reports of flooding. And he was swept out of his vehicle. Um, they found his vehicle smashed. Uh, the only way they could identify his vehicle was because of the uh, color, Colorado State Patrol key ring on it. Wow. But his last words were, get everybody out. He did not say, um, please, God save me. He did not say, um, say goodbye to my family. His very last words were, get everybody out. The flood is coming. Um in my mind, that is extreme heroism. Michael Conley, another off-duty police officer, he was with his wife in the canyon. He pulled over, and he knew the rules. He pulled over and told his wife, climb up the mountain. She didn't want to leave her husband. And he said, no, you have to go, and I have to stay in my vehicle. And he knew. I could tell. If he's telling his wife to go up the mountain, yeah. then, then, then he knew that if he stayed in his vehicle, the chances were high that he was not going to make it. And, and he did not. Um, and so, so, much of this, so much of this project is, is dark, right? It's about the loss of life. But, uh, it the, was the, very painful to read. <laughs> yeah, to read, yes. to write. The silver lining, I suppose, uh, just in the last few seconds here of this project is, is the heroism and is the kindness that can be demonstrated in these events, huh? Um, well, there's, uh, I'll tell you, there was a young man, a 21-year-old man named Byron Thady, who was going to work on the telephones in uh, 1921, and he and a co-worker, uh, 
Mrs. Joseph Pryor. Um, they ran to the phones. They tried to comfort the other telephone operators. The water's rising. They're standing on chairs, then tables, for 24 hours. And all they can do is talk into the telephones and try to comfort people and say, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Yes, it is the heroism. It is people understanding that um, this is the time to, to kick it in and help your neighbor and be there for each other. Thank you so much for talking with us, Doppler Mom. We appreciate it. Thank you. It's Darla Sue Dolman. Her new book is called Colorado's Deadliest Floods, and it includes the floods of 2013, which took place four years ago this week. Tomorrow, we'll visit a river restoration project near Lyons, Colorado, which was hard hit in those floods. After a break, Colorado Springs poet Janice Gould on the sadness of not being who you really are. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Janice Gould's poetry is a reflection of her life as a lesbian, as the daughter of a transgender father, as a human being searching for love and connection. Gould teaches women's and ethnic studies at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and her latest collection is called The Force of Gratitude. And she is with us from the Springs. Janice, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Doing well. Nice to have you. And uh, I'd like to start by having you read a prose poem from the book that gives a glimpse into your family. You are at your dying father's bedside, and he'd transitioned to female, I think about 20 years earlier. So would you read just that first section of Elegy for me? Sure. Elegy. One. In that wing of the hospital, other families confer. We must look the same dazed and inward. In her room, our father in a pale nightgown seems asleep, attached as she is to machines. I watch while my older sister works lotion into our father's feet, in hands, speaking in the voice she uses when she gentles one of her horses. My younger sister tells us she noticed an orderly treating Dad roughly, calling Barbara him, disdainful, of our father's transgendered body, the male figure reshaped into a feminine form. One of my sisters has brushed Barbara's sparse white hair, pink skin at the crown of her head, the blue veins of her eyelids. Days ago, snow fell on the highest slopes of Mount Diablo. It persists. Meanwhile, on the lush foothills, wild mustard waves a brazen flag in spring wind, poppies open their luminous cups. Hmm. It must have been very difficult for your family to know that an orderly had been mistreating Barbara, uh, your, your father. It was a bit surprising. Uh, and, yeah, a little difficult. But, you know, it was temporary. <laughs> Help help ground us by telling us more about your father's transition. I, I think he had transitioned already when you were growing up. Is that right? My dad waited until my mom passed away, which was, oh, I was in my late 30s at the time. Ah. And um, so I think he began probably in the early 90s. 
And, um, but it had been something he'd wanted to do his entire life. And um, so, yeah, so my dad lived as Barbara for the, about 20 years, I think. Why do you think he waited until your mother's death? It was probably a little bit more difficult um, earlier, back in the 70s or 80s, to transition. Um, just just in terms of numbers, right? Today, you know, quite a few more people are transitioning. And I think um, my dad was still working and probably felt it would be difficult to explain this uh, transition at an earlier period of time. The 90s, it was, a, I think, kind of a shift, um, especially in the Bay Area, towards understanding um, sort of the struggles that people go through around sex and sexual identity and gender identity. You grew up, I think, in the Berkeley area, right? Yes, that's yeah. right. There are two more sections to the, the piece that you read, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you about the second part of the poem, which shifts away from your dying father's hospital room and is about American Indian traditions that recognize more than two genders. Just explain that for us. Yeah, there are a number of of um, indigenous communities that recognize that gender is a very fluid concept, and people for hundreds of years have been able to sort of go between um, different expressions of gender. And so there are a number that I mention in the second part of that uh, poem. And I think from the Native point of view, who you are is dictated by something much larger than, than just a personal choice. Um, it's something that comes from the Spirit. And, and so that's honored in the recognition of how people express their gender or many other things. There is the the full prose poem, by the way, at cprnews.org. But it sounds like I interrupted you. Go go ahead. Oh, no. I think that was about all you needed to say. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I want to step further back into your past. You have captured this sense uh, in some of these poems that so many of us have as teens that we are different. In Gesela, of first or second love, especially, I think. Will you read that poem for us, Janice Gould? Sure, I'd be happy to. She joins us from Colorado Springs. Gisela of First or Second Love Hoping to see her after school, I would wait at the stop for the number seven at Milvia and University, the bus she took, too. Choosing the seat behind her or just across, I'd wish she would turn her head, notice me. To sit near her, observe her calm hands holding a book while the lumbering vehicle made its way past North Gate and up Euclid to Rosewalk with its Maybeck houses. How devious. Sometimes I would stare beyond her profile, past Berkeley's twisting streets and narrow paths, feeling leavened when strands of her light hair fell along her cheek as she inclined her head to read. I ached to say something to her. Mary Posa, Mary Gold, marry me, but never could. At the next stop, she would step down into a world of plain trees and neat gardens, 
into a family so normal, so unlike mine, I could hardly breathe. <sighs> Boy, the anxiety of those those first crushes. You never spoke you never spoke to her, huh? Oh, I not not that way. <laughs> I think we finally became friends on the bus, but oh. um but you know, you don't talk about those things and there's nobody to talk to when you're a young lesbian in the nineteen sixties. Um you, even in Berkeley, huh? Oh yeah, even in Berkeley. Yeah. Really I think those that you know, shift towards sort of a more open um society basically really started happening in the 70s the 60s were still pretty closed off how did how did your truth come out then um at that time in other words did it come out in odd ways or did you write sort of privately to yourself or journal or or what how what happens to that in, oh. <laughs> when it's internalized oh i loved singing um and so, you know, Joan Baez was, was hot during that period of time and several other folk singers. And so I think songs became sort of the vehicle for, for carrying a message to somebody, um, longing or um, loneliness or, or pride or whatever it might be. Um, you could find ways of singing it, and that's what I did um, so I think that was the sort of the primary way. And I, I imagine I was writing poetry even in, <laughs> even as a teenager. I have none of those poems, by the way. But, um, <laughs> yeah. You know, that might be a blessing. I look back at old writing and it can be excruciating to look at. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Your mother was of the Konkow tribe. And uh, mm-hmm. there, there is a lot of American Indian imagery in your poems. Uh, So I'd like to have you read Holy Wind as we wrap up here. Mm -hmm. Yes, and so this is from a very different tradition, the Navajo tradition, really. Yeah. Um, Then I was thinking about Holy Wind. The Navajo say wind enters us at birth, and when we die, it spirals up and out through the tops of our heads, the whorls of fingers and toes. Each spring... Wind brings its shadows and troubles, slitting wide the sky, whipping topsoil into clouds of dust, corkscrews of red grit. In summer, wind storms down canyons, veers off rocks, shears snow from the face of mountains, shaking fire from the sky. Wind nudges unfurled leaves and discourages sparrows who perch tenacious amid tossing branches, Rattling panes of glass at night, wind flutes through cracks and under sills, while stars whirl through the dark depths, heedless and distant. When sunrise shimmers at the edge of the mesa, we wake to roads swept hard, raked to a stony surface, and breathe a common breath. Wind is relative to each of us, animals, insects, earth, you and me. It seems we are nothing but a vibrant radiant, a vibrant residence sheltering that cadenced force, that vast sigh. I love the wind as vast sigh. Did you write that in a really windy place or after being in one? Well, I was in Durango and um, 
probably a spring in Durango. My partner used to uh, be a librarian down at um, Fort Lewis College. And uh, so I would go down to Durango fairly often. And we had a room in an old house. It was it was wonderful. And windy. And that, of course, sort of, yes, windy and, <laughs> and, and Navajo country, too, and Ute country as well. Janice Gold, it's been a pleasure to speak with you and to hear your poetry. Thank you so much. Well, I, I really appreciate being asked to, to be here. Thank you so much. She's Colorado Springs poet Janice Gould, and her latest collection is called The Force of Gratitude. She's a panelist at this weekend's Jaipur Literature Festival in Boulder. And that's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is CPR News.